Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We welcome those who are joining us today uh, from a distance, electronically. So just before we start Medical Grand Rounds, I want to thank the Cookie Learn people that have produced a wonderful breakfast for us today. I hope you learned and got some education about culinary medicine, which is the point of these uh, programs before Grand Rounds. We did have a contest today, and it was a question. Today's topic was protein and ways of getting protein that were maybe not from animal fat, but from uh, vegetables and other things, or from fish rather than red meat. But the question had to do with name something that would be uh, around a healthy plate. So it was pretty wide open. And I see a lot of people in the room, but we only had a handful of people who submitted and randomly chosen by Jay Bucky was Gene Strawbridge, who wrote Lean Protein Like Salmon. So Gene, come up and get your gift. And this is... This is the heirloom beanland of protein. So there you go. Leguminous vegetables. Thank you very much, Gene. Without further ado, I'm going to ask uh, Bob McClellan to come up to uh, introduce today's speaker. Bob, as you know, is an associate professor of medicine. He's the section chief in occupational medicine, and he is the director of our uh, employee health program, among many other things that he does. So Bob, come up and tell us about today's speaker. Well, one of the things I do is I pay attention to our OSHA lock, and uh, bloodborne pathogen exposures is an area for improvement. And uh, I'm really delighted today to be able to uh, bring uh, truly the kind of world expert in healthcare acquired infections, and particularly uh, with his interest in uh, bloodborne pathogen exposures. Um, uh, Dr. David Henderson uh, earned his medical degree from the University of Chicago's uh, Pritzker School of Medicine uh, and then went on to complete his training uh, in internal medicine, followed by a two-year fellowship in infectious diseases at the Harbor uh, UCLA uh, Medical Center. Uh, after a year on the Faculty of Medicine at UCLA, he was recruited to the NIH Clinical Center as its very first hospital epidemiologist, and I read online that before that it was a uh, pro bono uh, position, so hopefully they're paying you these days. You know. uh, and, and, and Not there, much. <laughs> uh, and there he is now the Deputy Director uh, for Clinical Care and Associate Director for Clinical Quality, Patient Safety, and Hospital Epidemiology. His primary research interests over the years have been in occupational risks for and prevention of uh, transmission of bloodborne pathogens uh, in the healthcare setting, as well as in the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare associated transmission of multi drug resistant organisms. Uh, I was also able to find online a fascinating oral history that he gave uh, in 1996 of his engagement in caring for the first uh, HIV patient admitted to the clinical center. And in that, his uh, engagement with that patient, he was looked to as a hospital epidemiologist to figure out how to protect the healthcare workers uh, caring for that, that patient. Uh, so what we do today is uh, very much uh, 
Thanks, thanks to you. Uh, more recently, uh, Dr. Henderson has provided the executive leadership for a team of NIH clinicians and staff in developing and implementing a high containment clinical unit for the care of patients infected with highly transmissible infections and subsequently in providing care at the NIH Clinical Center for patients who had or had been exposed to Ebola. Uh, he's published more than 150 peer-reviewed journal articles, as well as more than 70 book chapters, and has worked on nu numerous national committees, including as the initial chair of the Shea Research Committee, and I understand was the charter member of the Society for Hospital Epidemiologists. Um, in 2005, he was named the NIH liaison to the DHHS Secretary's Healthcare Infection Control Policy Advisory Committee, known as um, a HICPAC. Um, and in 2009, he was named to the DHHS Secretary Steering Committee for the Prevention of Healthcare-Associated Infections. He's received numerous prestigious awards uh, over the years, including two uh, Department of Health and Human Services Secretary's Distinguished Service Awards, six NIH Director's Awards, two Director's Merit Awards for significant achievement from the National Institute for Mental Health, and in 2010, to honor his career contributions to healthcare epidemiology, he was selected by the Society of Healthcare Epidemiology as the Shea Lecturer for the Fifth International Decennial Conference on Nosocomial Infections. And then, to cap it off, in 2013, he and three of his colleagues received the Service to America Award as Federal Employees of the Year, and I understand there are a lot of federal employees, so that's quite an accomplishment, for their work in controlling the spread of uh, multidrug-resistant organisms. Welcome. Thanks. That's a really kind uh, introduction, and uh, it just reminds me that I'm really old. Uh, that's how that uh, stuff happens. Uh, the uh, the one great thing about being the Federal Employee of the Year is you get to meet the people who are really accomplished because there's a series of like eight finalists, and the guy who built the Mars Land Rover uh, was one of the finalists, and so we got to hang out with him. That was the highlight of that for me. That's for sure. <laughs> So I'm going to talk today about managing occupational, and if we have enough time, and I have to watch my time, iatrogenic exposures to bloodborne pathogens. Probably won't have time to talk about iatrogenic exposures. But as you heard, I am so old that I got in on the ground floor of this uh, back in 1980 or thereabouts when no one knew anything about this disease. And people started admitting these patients to the clinical center, and our staff who do all kinds of things like this, Ebola, lots of fevers coming, uh, they've got an epidemic in Togo, the first US patient is being treated at Emory, I think, right now, so we may be getting that too. So there's more, there's more Ebola in Guinea, so our hospital gets ready for things like this, and we're expected to do this. And so our staff were, I think, quite understandably anxious about this. Well, what's my risk? I called my friends in Atlanta and said, what do you know about this new disease? Uh, what's the risk in the hospital? They said, well, we really don't think there's any hospital risk, or if there is, it's not much. Uh, oh, and by the way, the epidemiology of this disease in the community is almost identical to the epidemiology of hepatitis B. Now, everyone in this room knows there's a huge occupational risk for hepatitis B in the healthcare setting, that wasn't really uh, very reassuring to me. So we began, from the get-go, we started a study 
to look at occupational risk. So everybody taking care of these patients, we had them complete every six, it seems like it's every six weeks, may have been every month, questionnaires of what they had done with the patients. We banked serum on people because I was really worried about my staff. So what I'd like to do in the next 40 minutes or so is talk to you a little bit about how we came to know about this disease, a little bit of the historical perspective, the, the epistemology, if you will, talk about the magnitude of occupational risks, what we do for primary and secondary prevention, and then how we manage exposures. We probably won't get to infected providers. So what you see on this slide is the first information published in the United States about the disease that we now know as the acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, or AIDS, HIV infection. It describes uh, in the upper panel uh, five uh, patients in Los Angeles who were found to have pneumocystis. Uh, it wasn't even thought by CDC to be important enough to make it the cover article on this June 6, 1981 issue of the MMWR. Uh, the bottom panel talks about other symptoms that may be associated with it, and on the right, uh, for those of you who are, have, have uh, historical interest, that's the famous CDC iceberg slide. Uh, that What we see is just the tip of the iceberg, and there's probably a lot more below it, and they were absolutely right. Now, unfortunately, most of us, and when I say most of us, I'm not only talking about the lay public, uh, but uh, healthcare workers as well, learned about this disease from the lay press. And I guess if I've learned anything during my association with this epidemic since it began back in the 1980s, uh, the lay press is not necessarily interested in providing you with perspective. They're really interested in Im improving their ratings on television, selling newspapers and magazines, and accuracy uh, is not a, a highly prized attribute. So virtually every major news magazine had covers describing this epidemic, mysterious and deadly, tracking the killers, the AIDS hysteria, but no cover more than this one on the front of Life magazine in 1985 uh, caused me more heartburn. When this went up for sale in, in the R&W shop in the basement of the clinical center, in big, bold red letters, now no one is safe from AIDS, all those people who have been worried about this for four years in my hospital were now incredibly anxious. At this time, we still didn't know what caused it, uh, and, we, and we didn't know anything about occupational risk. So at the time this was on, on sale, we had provided care for about 400 uh, such patients in my hospital. <laughs> From this particular article in Life magazine, I learned two things. The first is, the people who write the article on the inside don't write the headline. Uh, and so if you've taken the time to read this issue of Life magazine, it was really pretty active. It talks about heterosexual transmission, not about no one is safe from AIDS. Uh, the second thing I learned is that safe is a relative term. You're never safe. Don't feel safe. You should never feel safe because safe in this instance in our country meant zero risk. People wanted no risk at all. Never happens. I understand risk. To get to this institution yesterday, I drove my car to the NIH Clinical Center, took a train, a metro, which last week got canceled because, you know, could blow up, uh, uh, to the National Airport where I got uh, on an airplane and flew to Boston and then got on a bus uh, and came up here. Think of all the risk I took doing that. There's a, there's a huge amount of risk. You could calculate what that risk is. 
Uh, so we're never safe. Safe is a relative term. Keep that in mind. Now, some of our most noted news magazines have contributed to our understanding. This one was this lovely lady murdered her husband with an AIDS cocktail. Those of you sitting in the back may not be able to appreciate that he should have had a V8. <laughs> this one, which remains my favorite from the now defunct Weekly World News. Someone once bought me, I, I use these all the time, someone once bought me a subscription to the Weekly World News. <laughs> now, here's a cover that has no fewer than four separate stories about the AIDS HIV epidemic, nursing mom gets baby AIDS, worldwide plot by homosexual terrorist groups to spread the virus, terrified women infected with HIV after artificial insemination, and on and on and on. Uh, but what, what's unique about this one, and the reason it remains my favorite, is that in their own inimitable way, the staff of the Weekly World News have chosen to provide you with perspective. It's there if you look for it. Refer to the upper right-hand corner where it says, go, go shocker, dog dead for a year, pulse drowning twins from lake. And I think you do get some perspective. If you're going to believe all these other stories, you have to believe the dead dog story as well. And I submit to you that it's not terribly likely. There is some good news. Uh, the number of vampire attacks has actually dropped dramatically uh, in the United States. So early on uh, in this epidemic, there were many people who were terrified, many healthcare workers who were terrified about this and were convinced that they were all going to get infected. And that sort of the, the, the leader of the pack was an uh, orthopedic surgeon who worked in San Francisco who said that doctors shouldn't have to take care of these patients and orthopedic surgeons shouldn't have to operate on them. And I loved her because everywhere she went, I, I got to go to put out the fire. So I traveled all over the United States and all over the world following her because people would be so anxious that they would want someone to come and stir the water. So I got to uh, do it. But she used to say regularly, there is a huge epidemic of HIV infection in healthcare providers that your federal government is lying to you about. So let's look at the data 30 years later. These are the data. 58 healthcare workers, these are gold standard cases. Healthcare workers who were known to be negative at the time of exposure, had an exposure, and then followed over time to show that they became HIV infected following the exposure. There are 58 in the United States, another, 100, another uh, 50 that have been reported from around the world. This is clearly an underestimate because not all the cases meet that definition, but hardly a silent epidemic by anybody's measure. Now, clever mathematicians in the room have probably noted that 53 of them had parental exposures and seven mucocutaneous exposures. 53 and seven don't make 58, but two of these people had both parental and mucocutaneous exposures, and so uh, they're just 58 humans. So if you stick yourself with a needle contaminated with blood from someone that you know is HIV infected, what's the chance you're going to become infected if you don't do anything else? So, it's a, ah, so I love that number. That's the only number I have any standing for because I helped create that number. That's exactly right. So we know those. Uh, we know that number from uh, 21 longitudinal studies of healthcare workers who had these exposures were followed over time to see what fraction of them went on to, to become infected. More than 6,200 healthcare workers, nearly 6,500 exposures, 21 infections. So roughly one infection for every 325 occupational exposures to blood from someone that you know has HIV infection. Does that strike you as unusual? It's a blood-borne infectious disease. It strikes me as unusual. 
and it's one of my favorite questions, I think we're gaining some insight uh, into the answers from studies both of HIV infection and especially hepatitis C. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. So when I look at those data, I'm always reminded of the old Henny Youngman joke when they used to ask Henny Youngman, how's your wife? He always said, compared to what? <laughs> How does that risk, that one in 325 risk, compare to risks that are already prevalent in the healthcare workplace? Well, here's one you all know about. For every uh, uh, 1,000 needle stick exposures to someone who's e-antigen positive for hepatitis B, you'd expect 270 to 430 infections, uh, 60 to 240 of which will be severe enough to put the healthcare worker in the hospital. For hepatitis C, these data shouldn't be combined in one slide because it combines 25 studies that use different detection techniques, the first generation test, the REBA, then uh, PCR, and so on. So they vary a little bit. But if you settle on 2%, so if you think, just to fudge it a little bit, 0.3 for HIV, 3% for hepatitis C, and 30% for uh, someone who's uh, e antigen positive for hepatitis B. Uh, it's a nice way to remember them, uh, sort of as a way of thinking about it. So, how do you keep from getting infected? An article from my favorite medical journal, the Washington Post, in 1984, about the uh, uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who then lived in Portland, Oregon. And he was my hero because he had 52 Rolls Royces. It's amazing what you can find on the internet. Uh, 52 Rolls, each painted jazzy colors, each, and he drove each car for just one week of the year. He was quite a character. He acquired a Western lifestyle and died of coronary artery disease. Back in 1984, he told us that we should stop kissing each other. But more importantly, if you read the article, four lines down, it says he already wears gloves for sexual intercourse. Really? <laughs> it's the right idea. He just wears the gloves in the wrong place. <laughs> not Star Wars, not Patriot missiles, nothing really elegant puts you in the driver's seat like standard precautions. A concept that should have been present in the healthcare workplace since 1949, when we, the first article was published in the JAMA about transmission of serum hepatitis to a laboratory worker. This is basic. This is the NCAA tournament. It's good basketball defense. Stay between your man and the basket, right? Put a barrier between you and the pathogens. You do that, you basically uh, minimize the risk. This is the only mathematical equation I'll show you during my talk. It's pretty straightforward. We didn't learn it very quickly. There's a lot of things about healthcare, health, the healthcare culture that need to be changed. This one I think we're gaining on finally. But it took us a long time. When I was a medical student at the University of Chicago, I went into the operating room. We all got, as freshman medical students, we got one trip to the operating room. It was supposed to like remind you you were in medical school while you were trying to learn neuroanatomy. Uh, and I went into the operating room to watch an esophagogastrectomy. I learned that day that I would be an internist because I put my green pants on backwards. I tied them in the back, uh, and the pockets were in the front. <laughs> no. Son, you're going to be an internist, OK? Uh, but uh, during the operation, the surgeon nicked an artery and sprayed blood all over everybody in the operating room, all over my greens. I wore them around the rest of the day. I thought I was the macho man. I had really arrived in medicine. But in truth, no one 
took me aside and said, every time you do that, it's associated with risk. We don't even yet know what all the risks are that are associated with exposure to blood. It's a very important concept. So there's a lot you can do in 2016 to minimize risk for all these diseases. The thoughtful, that's the cerebral use of standard precautions. I mean, think about it before you do it, and then do the most appropriate thing. I, I struggle with OSHA because OSHA operates from the brainstem at the thou shalt not uh, do this level. Most of this should be, I mean, for me, drawing venous blood is not a risk. I can't tell you how many times I've drawn venous blood. I've never gotten blood on my hands, not once. Starting an IV, 100%, because I'm insecure. Back in the day, you had those angiocasts. You'd slip them in, slip it over, occlude the vein with your fourth finger, and then pull out, get ready to hook it up, and then let up to make sure it flashed back. In the, and every time you do that, you get blood on your hands every single time. So for, that's the kind of thinking I want you to be doing. Educating people, modifying procedures and work practices that are intrinsically risky. If every time you do procedure X, you stick yourself, there's either something wrong with you or something wrong with procedure X. And you need to look at that. And so you're talking about improving uh, your data. Look at the circumstances of exposure and see if you have a device that's a, that's a particularly bad device. See what's out there. Use engineering controls when you can. Of course, vaccination is important. And you can make a difference. These are data from my hospital. And of all the things of which I am most proud, this might be at the top of my list. This shows parenteral exposures among our staff per 1,000 discharges over 30 years, God almighty. Um, but you can see that we really made progress. I'm going to tell you how we did that and how I think you can uh, do that as well. Um, it's not fair exactly, because right when we started universal precautions training, uh, we had an event in the hospital for a woman working on, in our uh, transfusion medicine department uh, doing something I've done hundreds and thousands of times, it seems like, had a red top tube that she spun, spun down, uh, took the red top stopper with her fifth finger, took it out, pipetted off the serum, and then cranked the stopper back into the tube. The sidewall came out of the tube. She cut her finger. 18 days later, she had the acute retroviral syndrome, and about two years later, she died. It had a profound impact on our hospital. We all watched her die. It was before there were any retroviral drugs. Sobering. So we put together a team, and I'll tell you about it in just a second. You have to think about a culture of safety. And this is, I think, where medicine still lags far behind. We don't think about safety first. Safety for our patients and safety for our staff. You have to publicize, streamline, and allow easy access to injury reporting mechanisms. You have to aggressively encourage reporting of exposures because we now have something we can do about almost all of them uh, and create metrics for timely reporting. This is a great improvement project if you uh, just keep score. From the time of the exposure, how long did it take to get it reported? How long did it take to get to the person's uh, uh, occupational medicine service? How long did it take, if it was appropriate, to get the first dose of antiretrovirals? And make a team out of it. Engage the hospital safety officer, uh, the hospital epidemiology program, the occupational medicine service, the IV team, your HIV team, uh, and process through the documented exposures. Look at them epidemiologically. 
I mean, are there common circumstances of exposure? Uh, are there common procedures? Are there common devices? And then uh, in, intervene. Make improved reporting, injury re reduction, and timely administration, uh, institutional-wide improvement projects, and then benchmark uh, with your neighbors to see how you're doing. First aid, reporting, report to the Occupational Medicine Service, evaluate the source for bloodborne pathogen infection, and then your OMS team will provide the post-exposure care and counseling. So what about hepatitis B? We still have a lot of chronic carriers of hepatitis B uh, in our patient population, even though we now have a perfectly effective vaccine. Uh, people with uh, renal disease, oncology patients, transplant patients, injecting drug users, and lots of immigrants from high prevalence areas. Several U.S. healthcare workers still die annually of the complications of occupationally acquired hepatitis B. Some of those acquired many years ago, uh, but now with chronic active hepatitis or hepatomas. If the person has not been immunized, and I'm just certain everybody in this room has been immunized, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time about that, we have HBIG. Um, no one knows yet where any of the uh, directly acting antivirals uh, have a role for post-exposure prophylaxis. And because we have such an effective uh, vaccine, it would be an unusual circumstance where you might use them. We would not recommend them currently. For hepatitis C exposures, test the source patient uh, for antibody uh, and when appropriate by PCR. Uh, we always do that, but I'm spending your tax dollars. Remember that, so you have to justify it. Um, Baseline serologies you might not need an ALT. Uh, staff who develop repeatedly positive PCRs, we refer to our hepatology service. So this is not exactly the CDC recommendations. This is the Henderson modification of those uh, because we take a different tack than CDC has taken, although they've come off of it a little bit over the last several years. Uh, and there's, there's this co concept of either preemptive therapy or watchful waiting. I'm not even sure I would consider preemptive therapy anymore. Uh, watchful waiting seems to make the most sense, and let me just talk about that for a second. So why would we want to know if someone's gotten infected? And the answer is the genomic diversity is much uh, lower at the time of first infection. And so if you treat patients aggressively when you first identify them as being infected, the cure rates are extraordinarily high, nearly 100%. Uh, so unlike the 60-some percent we used to be able to generate with interferon-based uh, treatments, uh, this great paper from Yakel and co-workers looked at uh, 40, was it 44 cases of patients who had acute hepatitis C. Many of them were, were enteric. I have never seen a case of acute hepatitis C, and I have no idea where they found these people because it's usually an indolent infection. You don't discover it for 20 years. So this is an unusual set of patients no matter what. Uh, and so that actually may be an important thing to consider as you're thinking about, how, about this paper. But they found these patients, they treated them, and actually all of the patients who were valuable were cured, ultimately. Just more about the, these patients. As I said, these are unusual patients. Perhaps they had a more robust immunological response and did more direct damage immunologically to their liver, and that's why they had acute hepatitis. Uh, treating acute infection is not equivalent to preemptive therapy, not like if you stick you with a needle and we give you post-exposure prophylaxis. That's not the same thing. This is after the infection's already developed, 
And so your body has already had a chance to make an immunological response. Uh, toxicity and adherence will likely be a problem. We talked about genomic diversity, uh, acute infection we talked about. So if you're still using immunomodulators for these patients, and they're certainly uh, cheap, they're not cheap, but they're cheaper than the new directly active drugs, um, it's perhaps not relevant to use them so much if you do them immediately after the exposure, because you'd be expanding the population of lymphocytes generically. If you wait until the body has a chance to respond, then you'd be stimulating lymphocytes that might be the population that you're really looking to stimulate. It's also important to note that natural clearance likely occurs with a much higher frequency than has been previously suspected. We know this from two really elegant studies of closed populations, one of which I encourage you to look at this paper by Largi and co-workers in hepatology, where they were uh, evaluating a CMV vaccine uh, in nuns uh, who all volunteered to participate in this CMV vaccination trial, and the vaccine was contaminated with hepatitis C. Uh, and so they went back years later to evaluate the nuns. And uh, a substantial fraction of them were hepatitis C infected, as you might guess, but a substantial fraction of them were not. And they did not have antibody against hepatitis C. But when you looked at whether or not they had cellular immunity against hepatitis C, all of them had cellular immunity aggressively directed against hepatitis C. They cleared the infection. So that probably happens if you uh, are among the doubters 30% of the time, and if you're a believer 50% of the time. So if you think about trying to treat your colleagues who've had occupational exposure, if half of them don't need it and the drugs are really nasty, uh, it'd probably be better to know whether they're infected or not. So that's why I like the watchful waiting strategy. Just we don't know. Uh, we don't know the answers to these questions yet, but that's the strategy that we use at the clinical center. We do know that interferon doesn't work as post-exposure prophylaxis. We don't know anything about the new, H uh, new hepatitis C drugs. Uh, post-exposure prophylaxis might be possible with these drugs. It is for other infections, uh, but it would be incredibly expensive, and you'd be treating 100 people for every three people who actually needed it. And at the cost of these drugs, I can't imagine it would ever be cost-effective. So these are the currently marketed or almost marketed uh, combinations that might, might work in this situation. I would not encourage you to use them at this time. So what if you have an occupational exposure to HIV? We know a lot more about that these days. Here's a guy who cut his arm off for a 1 in 325 risk. And despite the fact, to my knowledge, there's not yet been a placebo-controlled trial of this mode of therapy. <laughs> Uh, any of you who are interested in ophthalmology also, and the uh, blind woman sees again after Dennis pulls out her teeth. Right. So there's a, I think in this day and age, there's a lot we can say about uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. The first thing we can say is that we'll never know definitively that it works, because there won't be that classic randomized placebo-controlled trial. Bruce Welcome tried to do it, and they couldn't find any healthcare workers who were willing to take placebo. They were probably all smart, those people. And I'll show you some data that I think are pretty compelling. The reason we did it, I think we were the first ever to do it, in part because you don't know about my hospital, but one of the things, new things happened in my hospital. Uh, AZT was developed in my hospital. 
and it was as a drug, a candidate drug, was developed. So I got to watch it be born. It was really interesting. Phil Pizzo had all these babies who had who were like flaccid almost, who would come in, and they would hook them up to an AZT infusion, and they would just wake up. It was amazing. So I thought, wow, this is really great stuff. Turns out, if we had all the drugs now, AZT had them, and just we're going to the FDA to market them, AZT wouldn't, wouldn't make it because it's not as effective as these newer drugs, but it's pretty good. The reason we decided to offer it is the story I told you earlier. The young, the young woman got my attention who died, and I said, if we have a drug that can do something about this, we should at least offer it to the healthcare workers. We, we shouldn't make them take it. We should let them choose. It empowers them to be able to have such a choice, uh, and it puts them in a position uh, of, uh, puts us in a position of advocacy, in, in my view. So we now know that there's a fair amount of evidence that suggests that antiretrovirals may block the dissemination of HIV from dendritic cells, which are the first cells that bear the virus when it gets into the skin, uh, to susceptible T cells. Uh, this great study by Clarici and co-workers that found that T cells from six of eight HIV-exposed but uninfected healthcare workers um, went off and produced IL-2 when exposed to HIV peptide antigens. Does this sound a little familiar to the hepatitis C story that we just talked about? So maybe this explains in part that one in 325 number. At least that's my view of it. Um, another paper from the same group where uh, uh, 20 healthcare workers who had had documented HIV exposures, seven of them uh, produced cytotoxic lymphocytes when they were exposed uh, to uh, Envelope uh, peptides from HIV. And we have some in vivo evidence now. There, as I mentioned, the rate of transmission effectively precludes a clinical trial. You'd need about 6,000 people in each arm of a randomized controlled trial uh, to get significance at the 5% level. And we couldn't find 30 people back in the day, and probably fewer now. We do know, however, that these drugs can prevent animal retroviral infections, and there are lots of models that show that these drugs work in that setting. Um, we also know that they prevent maternal fetal transmission, and they uh, were shown to be effective in the CDC's retrospective case control study, and I'll tell you that story in a second. And we have clinical experience since 1990 giving these drugs in this setting. Two of my favorite animal studies, the Bodiger study published in AIDS in 1997 and the Psy study published in Science uh, in 1995. I love this study. Can you imagine? This is a, what, 5, 10, 20, 5, 35 animal study published in Science. What it shows is the animals that got this drug, PMPA, phenoxymethylpropyladenine, which is tenofovir now, uh, got 30 milligrams per kilogram uh, four hours after intravenous inoculation with SIV at a level that was high enough to pr produce infection in 100% of control animals. None of five got infected. And even more strikingly, five animals that got the same dose 24 hours after inter intravenous infection, none of the five animals got infected. Sounds like penicillin for grip A strep. If you'd have told me that anyone would produce a result that looked like this when we first started giving it, I would have just laughed out loud. I would have never believed it. But that's pretty compelling. The other thing I like about their model is that 
it has things about it that make sense. So duration of treatment may, so if what we're trying to do is hold the virus at bay while we're generating an immunological response, then duration of therapy would be important. A short course wouldn't do it. Longer courses would make sense. And in their study, all the animals treated for 28 days were protected. Half treated for 10 days and none treated for three days were protected. And for the surgeons in the audience, delay of treatment is detrimental. Don't wait. None of the animals treated within 24 hours developed infection. Only 50% treated 48 hours and 25% treated 72 hours infected uh, in, after infection were uh, protected. So this will happen to you for sure, and you it's already happened, I'm sure. Surgeon calls you up, so I'm able to sleep for a week. I stuck myself uh, with a scalpel uh, in the operating room a, a week ago. The guy turned out to be HIV infected, and now I can't sleep. So you say, come on in, I'll take a look at you. You value him, get baseline stuff. Put him on drugs, I would put him on drugs, makes him, make, will make him feel better whether it's doing anything or not. But the educational thing you would do at that time is say, so the next time this happens, remember he still has only one in 325 chance of getting infected. Uh, the next time it happens, come and see me immediately because we have these other things we can do. Very common set of circumstances. Maternal fetal disease. Uh, Benchmark study is the ACTG076 trial that showed that a 67% reduction in transmission from moms to babies. Uh, only 30% uh, could be explained by a reduction of uh, maternal RNA. The maternal RNA uh, titer uh, didn't explain the transmission. So perhaps the baby was getting an effect from the drug. And here are two studies that really emphasize that. The first study published by Wade and co-workers from a county hospital where the mothers coming in hadn't all had pre prenatal care. And so some of them got the 076 regimen, AL plus P, which is before, during labor, and, and the child was treated. Some only during labor, and in some instances only the child was treated because the mother came in, had the baby, and they didn't know the mother was infected. But if you look at the data, treating just the child within 48 hours of birth was nearly as effective as the entire 076 regimen. A lot of people didn't believe that, including Bolters and co-workers from CDC who uh, conducted basically a trial of this approach uh, because they didn't believe it. And lo and behold, uh, the treating the child alone was as effective as the 076 regimen. That's not how we do it, but it might work. CDC case control study. Uh, just one brief story about that. The reason I'm, I'm the reason this line is on this slide, because by then I was going to CDC regularly, and I was telling them we were giving post-exposure prophylaxis. And if you go back and look at their guidelines, they they always say something like, "May wish to consider." I don't know what that means. You may wish to consider. So we're not going to give it to you. We're just going to think about it. I, I don't know. But at any rate, they were mad that we did this. Uh, so they did this case control study, which is a great case control study. And Denise Carter was the first author. And it showed all the things that if we were going out and having a nice bottle of wine and talking about that you would predict would be associated with risk. So if you could see blood on the device as opposed to not being able to see blood on the device, if it had been used for an intravascular uh, uh, injection or, as opposed to an intramuscular injection, if it was a deep rather than a superficial exposure, and if the source patient died within 60 days of the exposure, presumably a surrogate marker for viral burden, uh, all inoculum effect things, all those were associated with risk for infection in their case control study. They added at the last minute whether or not the person had taken antiretrovirals. And when they got the data, they didn't believe it because they already went to this thinking it wasn't going to work. 
And so what they did is they expanded the study. They went to Europe. They got cases uh, from Spain, UK, all over, and put them back in the model. And taking antiretrovirals still reduced the risk by 80%. So they published it. And I got to write the editorial that went along with it. And just to tie up the loose end uh, in the New England Journal, they don't let you do this. If you look at the bottom of that editorial, it's dedicated to the woman who died in our hospital. And I had to get permission from her family and everything, but I really felt like we were doing her right. So here's our clinical experience. Uh, since 1985, uh, occupational exposure is reported to CDC by year. And I think, as Bob, the great Bob Dylan once said, you don't have to be a weatherman to see which way the wind is blowing. Well, this isn't just because of post-exposure prophylaxis. There are lots of reasons that that's happened. Most notably, I think, the efficacy of heart and lowering patients' viral burdens. Primary prevention strategies decreased reporting, probably less aggressive case finding. Uh, but uh, secondary prevention uh, probably works. So I would encourage you to incorporate that in your res regimen here. Uh, pregnancy. Only thing that's different about pregnancy is that the risks are redoubled for you. You have to make sure that you, tr you transmit all the information to the pregnant mom about what you know about the drugs, what you know about the risk, uh, what you know about tox potential toxicities to the fetus. Current recommendations. Uh, in the literature right now, it says raltegravir, tenofovir, and imprasidivine. I think you could use dolutegravir e easily. It, that makes them all once a day, which is nice. Uh, so. Eventually, they'll get around to changing that. I get to participate in that exercise, uh, and it runs a little bit behind. Uh, these are the drugs uh, that are currently recommended as alternative regimens. I'm not going to go through this in great detail because they're in the literature. These are uh, agents that CDC says you should use only with um, expert, that's your HIV team consultant. These are the drugs that are either not recommended or contraindicated. Why is nevirapine contraindicated? Yeah, uh, some some healthcare workers who have some people's some other person's liver now, uh, and I think one person died actually. So this is sort of a depressing slide to me. These are the currently available antiretroviral drugs. Uh, I mean, that's quite a long laundry list. I, I would like to show you the list of all the new antibiotics that have been de developed during that same time, but it's a much shorter list, isn't it? Significant changes in the last iteration of the guidelines. We don't risk stratify anymore. Uh, everybody should get three drugs, they say. Uh, the acceptable and not acceptable ag uh, agents change just a little bit. Um, if you use this fourth generation, uh, antibody tests that also detects uh, P24. Uh, you can conclude testing at four months. The recommendation of therapy is still a month. The kinetics of administration as soon as possible. There's no magical hour, even though it says two hours. They, they just didn't understand what we wrote years ago. Uh, just as quickly as possible. Make treatment immediately accessible. Make certain that exposure has occurred. Choose a regimen that can be taken. Be cognizant of the source patient's therapy and viral burden where it's available. Get in, in there with your ID team and your HIV team. Be familiar with the agents, their side effects, and the management of toxicity. Anticipate and prophylactically treat side effects. Early on, 
we started doing this at the clinical center, and my good friend Julie Gerwig started doing this uh, at San Francisco General. And after about three years of constant bickering and fighting with each other, we decided to put our forces together and worked on this project together. It was a real joy for me in my career, uh, working with Julie. Uh, and we were sitting at the IDSA meeting uh, one morning having breakfast, talking about how horrible, how, how horrible the toxicities were of these regimens. And that all the patients were throwing up or having diarrhea, and Julie looked at me and said, why don't we give them prophylactic treatment for these uh, side effects. I said, oh, you mean like be a real doctor? As opposed to just having a clinical trial? And so we did that. It increased our compliance, our adherence rates from 35% to 85%, just simply by doing that prophylactic and telling them it's going to happen. You're going to get diarrhea if you do take this. You're going to get nausea if you do take this. Monitor for toxicity, adherence, and access, and uh, use your consultants. CDC still uh, sponsors the PEP line at UCSF, but we're down to 9 a.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, seven days a week. Used to be 24 hours. A congressional cut, I think. So I think I'm out of time, uh, uh, but I'm happy to answer questions uh, or uh, uh, whatever you like from here. I'm done. Great, thank you. Which gave me the honor of pointing. <laughs> Any questions? Yes. So, is an exposure to cutaneous intestine considered an exposure that can have a splash of blood on intestine? So there's only one study in the literature that's a, that has looked at intact skin exposures, and it estimates the risk, there were no infections, and it esti estimates the risk as, as lower than 0.0003%. I, you, if you listen to the first part of my talk, I won't say zero, but it's very, very, very small. Oh, I must have put you to sleep. No questions? <laughs> I have a question about smallpox. Okay, that's that's. that's I just so, so let me just check my pulse right here. Okay. Back, so I was vaccinated, you know, back in mm -hmm. back the authorization of that uh, public health immunization campaign, uh, and that was I was vaccinated as a child. So yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> now that was more than ten years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious what's going on with smallpox and uh, revaccination and. I'm sure that there are probably investigators at NIH using oh, smallpox vaccine. So we have a we have a protocol uh, for uh, if the people who use pox vaccines in the laboratories all get vaccinated, and they uh, are have a regular schedule that they follow. That's a protocol. Jim Schmidt, who runs our occupational medicine service, could share that with you. But out in the real world, I don't think uh, anybody right now is doing anything with smallpox, except the military at Fort Detrick. I'm sure they're doing it. They're just not telling me. Uh, no changes in the vaccine itself? I don't believe so. Not to my knowledge, anyway. I probably would hear it, I would say. Yes? You could talk about, I have a question sort of about um, creation of a highly functioning team that's ready for future unspecified threats. Oh. So one of the big you know, to-dos at this hospital and many hospitals across the country, as you know, is 
you know, standing up a team that was ready in case an Ebola patient rolled across our ER's threshold. So did, and there's this sort of, you, you know, how much do you get ready for that specific threat versus how do you build a generalizable team that's ready for the next threat? This is an absolutely wonderful question, and I just need to get one little more piece of information. Do you want my opinion or the party line? Okay. <laughs> so I think that uh, Dr. Frieden didn't do us any service when he stood up and said that every, every hospital in the United States can take care of these patients. In my view, this is my opinion, that's horse hockey. It's, I mean, not even close. And shouldn't try. I don't know whether you guys would want to try it or not. It's hard. I will tell you. It's way harder than I thought it would be. I all, parenthetically, as I tell everyone, it's the most fun I've had in 20 years. I mean, it was really fun to do it because you do just what you said. It's a highly functional team. It is a team sport. It involves everybody paying attention to every aspect of this 100% of the time. There can be no, there have to be all kinds of fail-safe mechanisms built in, and there can be no failures. And so uh, we, I like the Watson uh, thing where you have somebody watching everything and even taking notes, if you will, and stop, that has the permission to say, stop, everyone stop now doing everything. So I think, I think it's smart to make a decision up front as to whether or not you want to try to do it here. There's not a lot of other choices around here, and so you might be the here. Uh, so if you're going to do it, then I think you have to put together a team that involves everybody from your housekeepers to the administration and they have to be engaged. Just a word of warning about that. We got our facility, our containment facility, because of Fort Detrick, because the Fort Detrick guys were working with all these agents, and they were worried about occupational exposures, and all they had was the slammer, close the door and die uh, place up there, and so they wanted a place where they could take care of these people. Uh, and so we practiced, we drilled every imaginable agent for 10 years before the Ebola thing came around. That those drills were basically worthless, basically worthless. I mean, because people would say, well, if we really had a patient, I'd be doing this. That's not drilling. You have to do it. You absolutely have to do it. And so when we were going to get the Ebola patient, the drills took on a different characteristic. Uh, they, well, let's look at this. And even after we had our first patient, who, by the way, wasn't infected, it was a blessing because we had a bunch of things that didn't work very well, and you learned, we had a, a team meeting every day at 3 o'clock where we went through everything that happened the entire day uh, and talked about all of the things that didn't go well, things that needed to be fixed, things that needed to be changed and modified. As long as you have a team that's resilient like that, and uh, uh, ours were all volunteers. Everybody volunteered to do it. Uh, and so I think those are the characteristics uh, of such a team. Uh, and then you just have to get ready. And if, if you're going to do it, I would encourage you to call Bruce Ribner at Emory. He's terrific. We learned they went first. <laughs> we, we were not first. Uh, and we were able to call Bruce up and say, well, did you have this trouble? Did this, how did that work for you? And so it, I think you find out very quickly people are willing to help you. Call us. I'm happy to help you uh, if you want to do it. Yep. You mentioned um, early on that uh, you're speaking about uh, infectious agents that we know about. That there are probably is other risks associated with well, exposures that we don't know about. Um, can you tell us anything about your prospective work to identify potential other agents? So, Har do you, Harvey Alter, do you know Harvey Alter? 
So Harvey Alter uh, worked with Blumberg, actually did the work in Blumberg's lab to identify the hepatitis B virus. Is on the paper that describes the hepatitis C virus. Uh, uh, got the Lasker Award for his work, uh, and is now 80 years old. One of the funniest people I've ever met in my life, uh, and is still sorting through blood looking for new pathogens. The hepatitis alphabet is up to H. Uh, I mean, most of them are not significant bloodborne pathogens, but this won't be the last one. I mean, just as, just for fun, Zika is a bloodborne pathogen. We didn't know about it. I, at least I didn't know about it until just recently. So. Uh, there are people who are intensively interested in that subject, who farm. So we, back in the day, we used to have a um, cardiac surgery program. We don't have it anymore at the clinical center. But Harvey got blood from all those patients, and he has the biggest uh, repository of serum samples I've ever seen. And so he, uh, he farms that looking for old pathogens that we've never identified, and then going forward looking for new ones. I don't know of anything right now that represents a major threat, but I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to learn tomorrow that there's one I don't know anything about. I'm not sure I answered your question, but I gave you something anyway. Yes? So I'm interested in the culture change and how ah. they go at changing culture. So other than having a major incident or a death or something, how do you, what kind of strategies can you have to change the culture? You have to be persistent. And I'm telling you, you've asked what I think is the hardest question. I think we, I mean, if you and I are going to sit down and draw up medicine as a profession, it would look nothing like what we do. And we somehow, especially as regards just the culture of safety for our patients and for our staff, would do it entirely differently. Corners that we cut, every one of those is associated with risk. I, my whole life, I've just basically thought about risk and risk mitigation and risk management. And if you think about it, we would never do it that way. Why it doesn't change, I think, is a complicated question. So everybody in this room knows who Ignat Semmelweis was. He was a smart guy. He figured out that there were pathogens on people's hands and told people to dip their hands into Clorox, basically, uh, to get them off his, their hands. So we know about that since 1868. Why don't we do it? Well, there are reasons for that. Uh, I especially like uh, the Didier Pate did a study in one of his ICUs where uh, if he calculated how long it took a nurse uh, to use even a hand hygiene product on her hands and then also measure the number of times during that nurse's shift she or he should really use hand hygiene. And if she did it or he did it appropriately, it would have been about 40 to 60% of the time on the shift would have been spent given over to hand hygiene. Not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So some process engineers, we should get the, that's the Facebook guy in, you know, to look at processes that we never thought about before uh, to try to change culture. It's hardest, I think, to change cultures in terrific institutions because terrific institutions have grown up their own way. I mean, I often, when the new fellows come to the clinical center, they almost always at the first uh, lecture say, that's not how we did it in Kansas City. And I say, son, you're not in Kansas City. <laughs> uh, it's hard. And often it's wrong. Often we're dead wrong. 
But you know, you got people my age who are really resistant to change, really not. But everybody I know who's my age is resistant to change. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, and that's that's the hard thing to do. So you have to be persistent. At NIH, one of the great things is the data wins. So uh, unlike at suburban hospital across the street where the chief of surgery does what he wants because he generates the revenue for the hospital, at NIH, it's the coin of the realm of science. And so if you can come up with really compelling scientific reasons to do things, you can sometimes win. That's a way to change it. But it's very difficult. It's the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. And I'm, I feel like I'm still Don Quixote uh, you know, tilting at the windmills. It's not an easy task. It's a great question. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Is that what you wanted? Okay, great. Great. Thanks so much.